Did you guys see the new Biden graphic design? Mm-hmm. The, the, the um, 1920s, the art deco. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as it's, a blind person, it's highly <laughs> illegible. As a person who values aesthetics, it makes me want to barf. Yeah. I don't actually know how widely circulated the image of that is. But yeah, if you don't know what we're talking about, there's like a new... Uh, there's like a new podium design for Biden that says vote. And it really looks like they went out and got basically, uh, I don't know, whoever designed all of the all of the like 90s reprints of like the Ayn Rand novels. Basically, <laughs> like I, it's I definitely was thinking, it lo- I was looking to me like the if Mr. Freeze ran for president. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely has like a Gotham deco vibe. It's very which, Gotham. Like, it's incredibly which, Gotham. Yeah, I mean, it. it's surprising that it wasn't etched in burl wood, but regardless, I think it, uh, I think it conveys, conveys the message. It's like, it's like Biden was going for like boomer energy from when he was a young person, <laughs> like, yeah. like generations back flapper energy, right? Flapper yeah. energy. Totally. Yeah. The good big, old days. Big flapper energy the good old um, days of massive income inequality and building, building back better flappers panel it's another thursday episode if you'd like to become a patron and get access to monday's bonus episode i highly recommend it that's patreon.com slash death panel pod on monday i sat down with jules gleason who is amazing and Mm -hmm. we talked trans healthcare in the uk and it's a really good interview so oh it's highly recommend listen to that one and then go back and listen to all of them there's no quality differentiation it's just more it's just about <laughs> how much of us you want in your life and the it's answer only, should it's about always more be more GDP. you want the gdp <laughs> we are included in gdp somewhere That's it's right. a transaction so if you like if you like gdp subscribe this is our this is our america first strategy <laughs> yeah that's the, the only real economic indicator you need is the length of any of any individual death panel episode the longer they are the worse the economic indication yeah. I think. <laughs> you want the line to go down right i mean real talk though the goal of this project is for it to cease to be a necessity to exist right in yes. theory yeah i don't think we're gonna ever get there <laughs> Like, it's like Fukuyama said about the end of history, like after the end of history, the podcasts just get like very short and boring and we start talking <laughs> about like, you know, baseball or whatever, but uh, history's, history's not over. So right. we're going to yeah. be doing yeah. this podcast for a while. It sure does feel like the end of history though. Can I read you guys something that Trump said uh, this week? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, means. So speaking of his son, Baron. Uh, Baron Trump to which Donald Trump the other day said who <laughs> well <laughs> I think I, I you know I no, I don't know I think I, I do think Trump pays pays a good amount of attention to Baron this is not Trump is not some Daniel Plainview character you know he's not like uh <laughs> He's, he has not abandoned his child. Folks, if you say, I'm a real estate man, I will agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, 
Yeah, I take your segregated apartments. I drink them up. Um, and uh, <laughs> no, but so anyway, so so Trump said this week of Baron Trump. You know, he had he had the Corona nineteen, the China virus. It's got twenty one different names. I could go over it, but to me, Corona means Italy. China is China, and it came from China. So he had the China virus, right? Uh, he then added, what? I don't even think he knew he had it, Baron, that Baron knew he had it. He was fine within like two seconds. Baron is beautiful and he's free. He's free. <laughs> wow. I mean, if you wanted, if you told me to write a uh, fake Trump statement where he was trying to cover up the death of Baron, that's probably what <laughs> yeah. it would sound he's like. Free now. Totally. You know, he's listen, Baron, he was better all of a sudden and he's free now. He just. He got really quiet for a second. Slept the surly bonds of earth. And he got very pale and he was lying in bed and then a more transparent version of himself sat up through his own torso and he said, Dad, Daddy, I'm free now. I'm this is free. Very Henry. I mean, Baron has always been a sort of Henry James like figure to me, like a sort of right. turn of the screw type child. But uh, yeah, you know, obviously this week we are going to be focusing on, um, I think, a a broad view of what's been going on in the past week because there has been a lot of I don't know I, I don't even know how to describe what this past week has Af- been affairs of state are <laughs> operating at previously un, uh, unfathomable levels of absurdity yeah and so to that end we're going to yeah touch I guess on every every branch of government Right. Free uh, branch of fuckery today. this week. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like this is the um, Schoolhouse Rock episode of Death Panel where we're going to yeah. explain the separation of powers. Right. <laughs> How a stimulus bill does not become a law. Right. I'm just exactly. a piece of subregulatory guidance here and I'm sitting in some agency. <laughs> 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 Wait, can you sing that though? No, I'm just kidding. No, no I can't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. You know, there has been a wild, wild flood of theater coming out of the executive branch since uh, since Trump was sent home from Walter Reed earlier this week. Um, Very I mean, biopolitical theater this week. Yeah. 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 It's a, a lot of um, a lot of discussion of, you know, the real core of illness, which is, you know, how much your own perception of strength relates to your clinical prognosis. Right. Yeah. Which is one of the three principles of evidence based medicine is, you know, if you feel like you're good to go, then you're good <laughs> to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's worth it's worth saying. You know, obviously, like Trump has he's been doing his uh, sort of best act to show that he's sort of like bounced back fully. I think if you just were like Mm kind of casually, you know, not paying much attention, it would look completely like that. Like he's completely beat the thing or something. And I mean, I will say, I I don't know. I think this is in some ways like classic Trump, right? He like he gets the plague. He's given (laughs) a lavish standard of care. uh, You literally cannot buy. And he emerges with the takeaway that's like okay, now I'm totally free of medication. I'm free. Well, and, and uh, also, and also the, the statement I think that he made is that like, yeah, there's probably, I think he was at the, some rally and was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm immune now. And all, and there are probably a lot of you who have COVID and you're also immune. And <laughs> I, I think that like, to me, like we, we've like batted around the phrase like biopolitical theater a lot since this all began. But like, 
the particular way in which it is by political theater is now like becoming clear, which is that um, to the extent that we have a very we, we not only have like a presidential system in the United States, but a presidential system in which the president and like the person of the president is very important. Uh, we have like a the president is supposed to have this sort of personalistic kind of <laughs> qualities and, and like relationship. It's now the case that like in order for the economy or anything else to seem healthy or good or normal, the president himself has to seem healthy or good uh, or normal. And so it's like, here's somebody who whose health status is truly unknown right now, right. Um, you know, has to pretend that they uh, have superhuman uh, like the whole Superman thing where he was going to like, whatever, <laughs> yeah, I wish take off the shirt and have the Superman thing. It's like, you know, that sounds really stupid, but that does like at a, a sort of semiotic level, he definitely understands the weird uh, biopolitical nature of the office of the president of the United States, which is completely insane and we shouldn't have it. But um, that is now <laughs> for a long time where we've been. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's more like the most honest portrayal of that sort of biopolitical metaphor that we're seeing right now perhaps that's because he's on steroids as someone who has been on steroids a lot yeah it changes your filters and your perception of your own self-worth to you know uh be from a range of like i fucking hate myself and i feel like shit to i am superman and i can fly probably (laughs) right um arnie can attest to this both of you guys can attest to this we've recorded multiple episodes of the show when i'm on steroids literally We've done infusions during the show, but you know, it's, it's a rich tapestry. <laughs> I mean, I think like there are a lot of claims in here that, that, um, as someone who is a medicalized body, who's been on medications like these for a long time, you know, clearly we're seeing a couple of things. One is that there is a significant learning curve that, the media and a lot of like reporters are having to do to sort of catch up on how these things work in the body and how to talk about them without just being like, he's on steroids. Steroids make you psycho. Right. right yeah. Um, so that's been fun to don't watch. Don't trust someone on steroids or something. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not saying don't trust someone on steroids. I'm just saying as someone who has been on steroids for the better part of 10 years, I would not want to like be on and off, yeah. on and off steroids. Yeah. But I would not want to be like in that, position if i were on steroids because it would be unpleasant and difficult but also i would make bad decisions well i mean also i think we've gotten a lot of questions about because i mean even as recently as um i think last week um we we mentioned very explicitly like well he's not out of the woods yet um or something Mm -hmm. which you Mm -hmm. know again the how to put it? the status of the king's body natural is as Phil mentioned unknowable at this point <laughs> but um but i i will say you know r- regardless of like wherever his actual um status is uh well a couple of things one is um here is beyond just saying like oh steroids or whatever um here here's how it's being <laughs> talked about by people in his uh, circle so this is like um a unattributed like a, a anonymous um uh white house uh, two two statements by different uh, anonymous White House officials as quoted in this um, New York Magazine piece. Quote, he's on the sort of drugs you'd see with a Tour de France writer in the mid-90s. Um, another, <laughs> another said <laughs> he is, quote, hopped up on more drugs than a Belgian racing pigeon. Whatever the <laughs> fuck that means. Um, this, this is just illustrative of what the fuck 
the the like ruling class of this country gets up to in their spare time. You no, know, yeah. the Belgian I'm... wrestling pigeon and <laughs> as high as that thing that I saw in '96. You could get a beer with me. I'm just a normal guy. I enjoy you know like European pigeon racing as much as the next guy. Yeah, I wonder how the Belgian racing pigeon circuit is doing in COVID times. Do they have a bubble? Or... I, I don't know. Might be but the only thing that's still going. I yeah. will tell you that um, in 2009 there was a record in the Belgian. Uh, pigeon racing arena which was that a star racing pigeon named Armando was fetched um, at auction for a record 125 million euros huh also okay so this is a real thing and presumably they give the pigeons drugs allegedly (laughs) okay I mean what has this sport become Uh, they give the pigeons drugs now you don't really know what the quality is if you if you google uh, Belgian racing pigeon. The first thing is who bought the one point four million dollar pigeon? Steve Manukin. It's Steve Manukin. Tell <laughs> yeah, me, it's fucking Steve Manukin. <laughs> that and that. Uh, yeah, that pigeon lives in the back of Manuk- Manuchin Gallery in Manhattan. <laughs> um, no, but uh, the well, literal gilded cage. Anyway. But- I, I do think it's really telling. You know, again, back to this like biopolitical theater thing. I do think it's really telling that like. Um, I think the particular takeaway is like obviously the the Trump going around and saying like I'm immune I have immunity uh, now is like harmful and and um, really problematic in terms of the already like totally crappy public understanding of how this disease uh, works. But he's also <laughs> now going around and saying stuff. There's actually like it's funny because it, it kind of um, it's very familiar to any of the sort of like wellness kooks that we've talked about mm-hmm. uh, over. Mm-hmm. The, the t- like the course of this show really um, people like Zach Bush MD or something uh, but he says Shout like to our favorite Zach Bush MD yeah which if uh, which I guess that wasn't that was a patron episode so if you um all like yeah go you should go back and listen to that yeah one. we'll link yeah. to it in the episode description yeah um but Trump for example said having a really protective glow means something attributing I don't even know what that hmm. means really but saying essentially Is that talking like, about his makeup. His, right, his his Trump's glow up helped him. He's a Dewey yeah. dude now. He's just he's transitioned into Dewey dude. He got really into you know light chemical exfoliation while he was in the hospital, and he realized the value of like you know surfacing until you get your inner glow up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think that this surfaces in like a lot of different ways, including, for example, like the like the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed last week uh, or like earlier this week. Um, called like why Donald Trump doesn't need to wear a mask. Ooh, basically. I missed this one. Yeah, um, me too. That's yeah. just mm. well. Let me just not tell you. True. It starts with <laughs> that's just not true. It starts out by saying President Trump should have worn a mask before he got the coronavirus. You should wear a mask now, whether you've had it or not. But he no longer needs to. And it concludes with basically saying that the reason that uh, he should wear that he shouldn't need to wear a mask is because we need hope that like the basically that the president having gotten it and (sighs) having you know scare quotes recovered and being able to go out without a mask uh as though he's now like immune or whatever um was this op-ed penned by jeff bezos did he write this himself (laughs) because because i feel like he's like this is literally just 
just uh, directly to his warehouse worker. If he, yeah, I mean, if Jeff Bezos has a has a um, pen name that is also a neuroscientist, then maybe. But, um, I would put it past him. Yeah, um, but I then, like. You know what? I like this take actually. Um, the the <laughs> record saying that I like it um, because it to me exposes the weird sort of, I think, medieval. Um, mystical nature of capitalism, (laughs) which is that like really in that, like the economy is produced not through a series of rationalistic calculative decisions, but through a series of fundamentally emotional and irrational ascriptions uh, about the state of the world. (laughs) Oh my God. Like the, if if you merely have that in a sense, the the leviathan needs to be able to sacrifice itself and to be eaten by the people as food like mm. that is essentially the the role of the president's real body now in the economy <laughs> that it has yes. to be uh that it has to be sacrificed as manna <laughs> for uh the the state of the economy that's that's like such a like wall street journal please publish please like republish in full various like meditations of medieval mystics now I <laughs> I think that that's it's time to do that i'm I literally mean, so close to sorry i'm literally so close to talking about uh medieval seed yields right now but i'm gonna stop myself <laughs> i mean in a way those plague masks are were not ineffective though you know like i i understand why people see uh the like the aesthetic of the plague mask is being like a scary thing that maybe contemporary masks, which look fucking nothing like it might, you know, uh, I don't know, conjure up nightmares of plague doctors or some bullshit like that. But like, honestly, like I wouldn't mind something with a hood goggles and like a two foot, you know, proboscis, uh, full of herbs, you know, with right. the most important <laughs> thing is the it, miasma out. Yeah. Right, but like the most important thing is like, yeah, you did have this whole situation of like them thinking that cinnamon would purify the air. <laughs> but um what the like the thing that many people pointed out is that in these plague masks you had two areas for ventilation right up on the side of the mask near the face where you could draw in air from, you know, and push your air out and you had fucking goggles and a mask. So how different is that from you know, something currently being sold on the Goop web shop? Just saying. I mean, you take the cinnamon out and like we're good to go, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and I, I don't think that like. It's Victorian PPE. Yeah. But you know, the, the, I, the thing like, okay, so like, yes, like we're scared of the like visual representation of disease in right. our culture. Right. Like I get that. However, like tuberculosis was romanticized to the point that it became like a desirable body type to be like incredibly wasted away and thin because rich people started getting tuberculosis and so it became chic right so like really the issue is that like this fucking asshole neuroscientist should be arguing that trump should be wearing a mask because he can make it chic well right he knows enough designers from the 80s right yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, whoever makes his gigantic suits with really long line coats can probably make some custom ones. It could become a whole thing. Yeah. You exactly. know, it could be more popular to be built like a big old Tonka truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like, I no don't know. Under- just saying. I don't understand why, like, the idea of, like, wearing really cool accessories is somehow being equated with, like, 
instilling fear and undermining everyone's collective ability to live like strong, robust lives where well, they do great things. I, I mean, this whole this whole like um, how to put it like medical mysticism uh, thing and like uh, I don't know like biopolitical chest like chest thumping mm-hmm. or something is very uh, I don't I mean like immediately from the moment that uh, Trump. Uh, did his like little you know uh, like drive around the block and then like get discharged the the next day or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, you you know the prevalence of the there's that like um, conservative meme that went around a lot that's like the that somehow like Trump having gotten the virus and then <laughs> having recovered like again scare quotes recovered we we have no idea but like having recovered from it um, will then like now his blood like they're going to do blood ministration or something mm-hmm. like blood is his blood is going to be the fucking cure or something which is sort of like a popular uh, like a misunderstanding of like the popular uh, discussion around like I guess what uh, like convalescent plasma and mm-hmm. also just I don't know the idea what that like it it's it's entered the special body of the king and now the disease is transformed and so we must like give the blood of christ or whatever out to i know i'm mixing a lot of metaphors here but you get my meaning right like yeah totally it's it's incredible like medical mysticism i think and and you know he's definitely not helping it by going out and being like i'm not on medication i haven't had medication for eight hours i am medication free Right. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. No. Until, well, it's like, I, I'm assuming he's just like, I'm medication free and then like taking his next dose. And then, yeah. and then he's like, technically. Well, also, I don't know the half-life of, uh, of like re- the Regeneron's uh, Mab cocktail in the blood. But I know, for instance, that like the monoclonal antibody therapy that B gets like stays in the body for at least six months. So... It, uh, that that distinction probably definitely probably definitely uh, went right over his head if a little bit lost on somebody him probably, actually yeah. told him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, clearly, like you know, the doctors did a br- pretty decent job explaining to him that you know we don't have very good treatment for patients with COVID, saying you know you could really go either way, no matter how rich and powerful you are, Mister President, um, because there's reports of him getting on the phone. Um, I think with reporters and with people in his staff saying, you know, I could be one of the dyers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, I could be one of the dyers. And, and I think it's, um, you know, to me as someone who's like done a lot of, um, done a lot of these kinds of drugs, haha. <laughs> you know, uh, monoclonal antibodies are a very serious, complicated biological, uh, innovation that we don't know a lot about and can cause really serious side effects if they're, um, you know, rolled out pre-testing and this whole idea of he's going to just like, oh, we're going to just make Regeneron like free to everyone at hospitals. Right. It, it's mm-hmm. it's also ignoring the thing that we talk about all the time is that these medications take time to produce. Right. Mm-hmm. And like ultimately, you know, whatever is going on in his own personal like body biologically, like he's creating the most powerful like signifier for like pushing to reopen the economy because it's like one excuse after another as to like why we need to like put our strong, vital, able bodies <laughs> out there, um, which obviously is a person with a chronic illness and disability like makes me want to barf. But um I mean, the other thing is, I think it it is sort of a necessary part of the rhetorical move to say that uh, when there are outbreaks, it's because people are, you know, either 
have conditions that already predispose them or they somehow weren't, you know, strong enough or they weren't adhering to they they weren't, you know, doing the things that they were supposed to, despite the fact that like a lot of the way that people form their impressions and judgments about the world that might influence their public health behavior uh, are formed through now this sort of uh, political gestalt. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a very necessary part of this, uh, of this rhetorical like posture. Well, I mean, and I think to that point too, uh, you know, like, like we even said in our, in our, uh, patron episode about it from the other week, like the people have like reacted to like either the sort of short amount of time that he was in the hospital or some of the, some of his like, you know, getting right back on video or whatever as like, it seems like it's fake. Maybe he didn't really have it or something. I don't think it should be be particularly like, but like to the point that you're, you're making Phil, I don't think that it should be like particularly surprising that, um, he, you know, at at least appears to be, um, doing fine. Like, like outside of all the, whatever, uh, Belgian, uh, pigeon, drugs or whatever <laughs> whoever i really want to know who said that quote now but like it's fully uh, manukin come on <laughs> yeah but uh, but outside of miller but, but miller's outs- totally into pigeon raising oh, God. well but, uh, but outside of that it's like for all the talk of you know high-risk populations or whatever like what makes someone more susceptible and like especially the fact mm-hmm. that like you know not not that it's like necessarily accurate but a, a popular conception of this would put like trump in um, one of these like very high risk groups, right? He's mm-hmm. like, and he's a older guy, um, like, you know, et cetera, like whatever. He's Not, prone to abusing stimulants allegedly, right. which can, you know, break down your upper respiratory resilience to infection. Right. But what all, all of this, all of the, all the stuff about like, um, at risk or high risk populations completely, uh, almost intentionally, uh, like avoiding the very basic fact that like, of all of the social determinants of health, like privilege and wealth are mm-hmm. obviously much more indicative of like what kind of uh, care and, and uh, treatment is like you are going to get and thus what is going to be effective and your and your like odds as it were mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. something like this. So in being, you know, in being like the president, mm-hmm. a white man, like all of these factors together, it's like, of course, you know, he's not he's not subject to all these like barriers of like system, systemic deprivation that we visit on like most people um, in our right. society. Right. And so I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is a quick fix. I have a quick fix to the covid uh, pandemic, which is make everyone president. Mm-hmm. Every last person <laughs> is now president. Love it. And. Word. They're all entitled to the president's same <laughs> level of care. We're uh, all on the same health plan. And we'll, yeah, we're all on the same health plan. No co-pays, free treatment for life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, love and, it. And does that mean good. that I, how do I, do I just, does the helicopter just pick me up to take me to Walter Reed or do I, guess. I have to like, ooh, is it like an app or something? I'll well, find, as, they'll, they'll send president. me a packet. I'm sure they'll right. send me a yeah, packet. Yeah, yeah. That's as a, part as of the president onboarding. now, you'll have another president <laughs> Um, who has a different presidential duty assigned to you to, um, yeah. to be your body, your presidential bodyguard where you guys will co-president together. The secret and- service. We're all, we're all so now everyone also has to be in the secret service because everyone has to protect each other. This is a, this is a, yeah, this is a, this is our, this is our back door to, uh, 
This is the, yeah, this is the back door to, to communist uh, yeah. rule. <laughs> 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 the death penalty five point plan for communism. One, One. everyone <laughs> is president. now president. <laughs> Two. Two, everybody is now also Secret Service. Three, we Question all mark. have national insurance now, right. and every healthcare is free. Right well. there, you go. We're all president. Anyway, love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I. I you know, I do worry, frankly, that his recovery is only going to fuel what we're already seeing from rich people, which is the idea that you can buy your way out of like preparedness or prevention for this. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about how uh, there were a lot of parties in the Hamptons this summer where, um, mm-hmm. you know, you had people who were hiring concierge doctors to come and do testing right before people walk into the, you know, fucking multi-million dollar mansion for a party. And, you know, like this sort of like short course of disease and his like pre- presidential Superman persona, I think is really definitely going to like continue to fuel that bad um misconception that like you can just like completely buy your way out of this and this is like something that is a problem for poor people only Mm -hmm. um considering the fact that the white house this week has also embraced the covid19 herd immunity declaration from the um, great barrington declaration (laughs) yes which i look forward to i think we're gonna think tank that could yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I believe that probably actually, you know, speaking of patron episodes, um, good time to become a patron because I think that our next one is going to be a deep dive on the Great Barrington Declaration. But we do have to mention it here because, yeah, yeah. Since, <laughs> since essentially I mean, it, I think all of all of this like uh, theater, but also, again, you know, the how the king's body natural is feeling about covid and his uh, chances of recovery or whatever uh, like are right now i think demonstrate the exact factors where you could see like yeah absolutely uh this like great barrington declaration of like uh what is it targeted targeted protection targeted protection yeah. of like focus yeah, of, protection of focus protection focus. robust um, protection being uh yeah becoming sort of like the the main headline policy right which is i don't know terrifying yeah terrifying i mean if you're not familiar the idea that's being peddled by a group of scientists and they have done like more than 50 interviews just the same group of people right so mostly epidemiologists they've said listen lockdowns are war on the working class therefore we must basically just create some sort of system for determining who is vulnerable segregate them from the rest of the population (laughs) warehouse them indeterminately in order to enable the younger people and the strong people again unclear on how these determinations will be made (laughs) yeah in order to make sure that those people can go to work right Mm -hmm. um because there's absolutely no risk of reinfection, no risk of long-term uh, protracted disease, morbidity, and symptoms from COVID-19. COVID long haulers are a myth, and, you know, herd immunity is real. Mm-hmm. So, well, they, say, they think explicitly that, like, many countries have almost reached herd immunity, which is, like, a, a, <laughs> one of the most absurd fucking uh lines that you, you could possibly looked imagine at any yeah. other country right no is this so is this horseshoe theory 
<laughs> Question. You said this think tank was from Austria. Well, I mean, it's all. T- <laughs> I mean, you know, I think you're referring right to the like the fact that they're saying like, oh, it's like that. The lockdown itself is is war on the working class, um, right? Yeah, but I'm joking, like, but yeah. No, no, no. I know, I know, but the uh, what's I mean that and that is, but I, I think that does point to a really important like fundamental absurdity in the entire uh, mm-hmm. thing, which is like, yeah, there are a lot of really good things you could do to stop it from being a war on the working class or Mm -hmm. to stop it from disproportionately affecting poor people and uh, like non-white people. And a lot of them have to do with like, I don't know, basic government assistance rather Mm -hmm. than (laughs) rather than say like, Oh, we're going to just sweep them all under the rug. We're going to like put like we're going to lock them away somewhere until like the moment that we declare, okay, emergency over. Yeah. I mean, boy, does that sound like what we did with typhoid and that totally worked. I mean, sounds like what we've been doing for the last six months. (laughs) This is yeah, this is being covered. Exactly. Vince, like this is being covered as if it is a new thing. But the only thing that's new is the administration finding these suckers really I, I mean i don't know if, if some of these people i assume uh, believe that they are smart people and that, that this is like you know they're staking their frankly they're staking their professional reputations on this right, right. so you know I, I can only imagine that some of them you know are doing it in good faith and thus they're suckers uh because <laughs> they have apparently no clue about how they're being just played by the most you know unimaginably monstrous like political forces but but yeah they this is just a justification for the the last months uh of what the administration's policy has already been they're going to use it to like uh you know retrofit the history yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so i mean and this is also it's worth stating like this doesn't even represent a minority evidence-based opinion within scientific uh purview right now it is like fully crackpot and herd immunity strategy other than in the way that it's been in practice implemented uh, during this pandemic, right? As we've been saying, like never before has anyone pursued a strategy of herd immunity that didn't already have a vaccine. Like herd immunity Mm -hmm. is a strategy pursued through vaccination programs, (laughs) not through wild infection. Murdering a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as we said, become a patron. We'll have not one, but two epidemiologists joining us for Monday's episode to trash this. Yeah. So it'll be a lot of fun. But, um, and people with real names too, not like the people who signed the great Barrington declaration, which includes, uh, Dr. IP Freely <laughs> is an actual signatory on the, on the Great Barrington Declaration, <laughs> as is Dr. Johnny Bananas. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I got a referral to Dr. Johnny Bananas years ago, and, and he really did wonders for my um, my hysteria. So yeah. he's, he's a good doctor. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, he yeah. Put, glad he, he cured it. A, glad he cured it. <clears throat> yeah, he put me at... He, put me in a chamber and just dumped water on me for 16 hours a day and sent me home after a month. <laughs> yeah. oh, love that Real, hydro. Yeah, they, they, they really work one, wonders there up at um, uh, Hollywood Upstairs Medical School. Yes, which is, uh, you know, a division of the Cold Springs Institute, right. of course. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, well, I mean, speaking of political theater, oh, we God. should... Um, we should talk about the Amy Coney Island hearings mm-hmm. that have gone on this must week. Like, <laughs> much, really much like Coney Island, not very fun this time of year. 
but but soon to be hosting Fright Fest. <laughs> Just kidding. Fright Fest isn't at Coney Island. Don't don't go to Coney Island if you're expecting Fright Fest. Okay, how much? Let's, let's be honest. If you don't want COVID. Let's, let's practice radical honesty here. Um, how much of this have you good people actually watched or listened to? Uh, I, too much. Yeah, I will admit we've had we've had the hearings on like while we're working on other stuff for we we didn't uh do monday but for like the last couple of days um and it's really i don't know it's one of to me it's like one of the most depressing uh parts of like the political theater actually that we're talking about that i've seen in a while because while it's uh as uh as you know i think we'll talk about later infuriating to see stuff like you know nancy pelosi go on like cnn or whatever and pretend that everything's fine when it's like obviously you know they're like actively (laughs) harming people (laughs) like uh, uh, as as time goes on like the absurd banality of the whole situation is like has been i don't know has been like really remarkable i mean Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's like shocking political malpractice to me that like the that uh democrats on the committee did not like choose to boycott the hearings or Mm -hmm. anything um, and instead have decided, I don't know what exactly that they're going to somehow get gotchas out of this person by saying like um, by repeatedly bringing up like stuff about the ACA or whatever, or just continuing to ask uh, questions about things that we like, that we all know that Barrett has very strong opinions on stuff like Roe v. Wade or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that, and then like allowing her chance over and over again to like deflect and kind of look good doing it, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the character of these hearings uh, that makes them like, intolerable for me to consume. And and I've felt that about these sorts of things since I started consuming them or trying to regularly since like John Roberts. Right. Yeah. Um, but like they, they have this characteristic that I think is actually emblematic of a lot of politics that makes it frankly, just uh, in a way depressing, but also entirely just banal and uninteresting to consume, which is that like, all of the players in the game have a very well staked out and like calibrated set of positions. Yeah. Nothing unexpected happens. I mean, the Kavanaugh yeah. thing was like the maybe sort of kind of exception to the rule, even though that was also scripted in a very particular way. But like really post Bork and certainly like post Tom, like uh, Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Like there is a particular set of things that, candidates to the or nominees to the court learn uh about what to do there are a calibrated set of things that people on the committee say and and for for a time we have to as a as a nation like pretend that everybody understands constitutional law and like <laughs> um you know or or that like any of the utterances of judges about their judicial philosophy are to be believed at all or right. taken seriously at mm-hmm. all. Or that uh, the court um, is an apolitical wing, which is something that the, yeah, the court is an apolitical institution. Yeah. Like we have to be reminded of these things and it's just completely, there's nothing unexpected that will happen, right? No, no one will say anything off color. No, nothing will be revealed. Um, and it's actually similar to like the sort of professionalization of judicial selection has contributed to this, which is why, of course, everybody knew 
Amy Coney Barrett's name for like the last four years. Her name mm-hmm. has been talked about as like somebody who's going to be uh, one of the nominees for the court. And so right. what it does for me is it does like wh- whatever the like part of me just doesn't want to watch this because of uh, just the belief that the court is itself is a, a just completely dead hand uh, pressing yeah. down on like the demos. <laughs> but like, yeah, I think the other thing about it is, I don't want to have to go through the uh, hyper normalized uh, feeling of adjective, just like, yes. Oh, I guess for a second we all have to pretend this is real still. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just really annoying. I, so Phil, I, I share, I share that basically exact sentiment. N- nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to be gained from watching it. Like very illust- illustrative of like a greater problem i think it's like uh, to, to me this is to the extent that you can draw any inferences from it or whatever like you know phil like phil's right it's very it's like very state nothing 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 unexpected will happen but it is a little bit like uh it's i think it's a very good opportunity actually to sort of just watch um like have you ever had the uh, the experience of standing in front of like uh well this is gonna date me i guess because arcades don't exist anymore but like standing in front of an arcade cabinet and like like a fighting game arcade game or something and watching like the CPU versus CPU fight. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like a totally scripted battle, but you can also see like, Oh, that guy has that move. I didn't know that that guy has that move. Let me see if I can figure out how to do that or counter it or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. not that, you know, and again, not that there's a lot of like, uh, valence or, or political value to that necessarily, but I think that, you know, for example, seeing in the, in the, elaborate like um you know system of dodges and parries or whatever that are all like pretty scripted and and set up um you know it is like it it is frankly like impressive to see for example like uh a court nominee go up and and say like no i won't comment on like climate change because climate change is a politically contentious issue that is like unresolved or whatever Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah um i mean it's a really good representation of this kind of like collective uh farce that we've all made an agreement to uphold as some sort of truth which is that like the judiciary represents like an apolitical impartial body of um somehow like sterilized american society that is like pure and untouchable by personal opinion lived experience or uh, embodied identity and yet at the same time there's always this like very strong focus of like the representation of those embodied identities of the court right and Mm -hmm. so what we're seeing right now is actually i think (sighs) it's going really well for republicans in my opinion, and Amy Coney Barrett is impressive, um, and that's not good. And I, I think like she is absolutely unflappable, um, determined, strong-willed. Yeah. Then the people who are questioning her, of which mm-hmm. you have all these like Democratic lawyers, like Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris, who are like trying to flaunt their expertise at her and she's like doing an incredible job of appearing like a relatable like independent girl boss bad bitch who's like Mm -hmm. i refuse to answer essentially over and over and it's like 
you know, the, the optics of this, like, is one thing, the theater of it is another, like, in, in practice, like, I think we are looking at a very powerful ideological figure who will have to deal with for a long time within the judiciary. Mm-hmm. And I can't see any way that this doesn't happen at this point. Yeah. And I, I do think that the, the thing that's missed, I mean, you did see Democrats, I think, unless you're doing the work of illustrating this sort of the, the sort of the basic institutional mismatch yeah. of the federal judiciary and like a democratic society, I, you're, you're not going far enough, which is to say that like in the 1930s, when Democrats had a fairly large and robust political program, which the judiciary was four square against, um, it became very tractable to the average person uh, that there was something rotten in this particular institution, right? Mm -hmm. It became very clear to organized labor that there was no point in dealing with the courts uh, or trying to seek redress through the courts uh, because they they were just, you know, so fun, like you fundamentally had to use other mechanisms and other means like legislation to do it. But now I think part of the problem is that we have this sort of liberal legal culture that, you know, prizes this institution because so many yeah. of its adherents have been shaped by it or shaped in it. Or like law school is the now a central pathway into politics. Law- lawyers make up a larger share of members of Congress than they ever have before. Right. And it's mm-hmm. just sort of increased monotonically over time. And so in that world, how are you going to get a coalition to get, I'm like very doubtful to say nothing of court packing, but like any judicial reform, which fundamentally Mm -hmm. will, you know, need to happen. Uh, if we want anything good to happen, I mean, Barrett is like, won't even say anything about, uh, whether or not she thinks Medicare and social security constitution, which is really beautiful, but, uh, (laughs) like, but I don't see that. I don't see that happening when you have so many Democrats who have just been, uh, soaked in the like wine and uh wine mm-hmm. and like butter and and <laughs> you know garlic solution that is law school yeah totally no and i mean it's and like the herb de provence that is law school yes. i mean i was yeah. gonna say you're making them sound like lobsters but yeah. um well, they kind of you are. Know, and it's it's yeah. particularly problematic when you think of how many um you know like let's take for example as we talked about recently like the ada is problematic in that it has a welfare reform framing which requires like some pretty uh heavy burden on the party um who's like trying to enforce their rights that they have to go through the courts right like Mm -hmm. because we've made policies like that right because we've said okay we're going to give disabled people civil rights and the way that that's going to be regulated and enforced is going to be primarily through like that person's ability to like litigate in the courts right it means Mm -hmm. that in a in a way like these fucking assholes like Diane Feinstein who like still think that that was a good way to deal with like accessibility right are then like you know they're upholding these like institutions and the institution is like the primary goal of like continuation not like oh are you know we able to like effectively govern people or legislate because 
they've spent fucking decades creating a more complex system of like interconnected dependency, which at the end of the day is like now completely vulnerable and incapable of acting like to respond to the pandemic. Right. Instead, we're talking about this. Well, I mean, like, let's put it this way, for example, in a situation where you have, I mean, I think, um, you know, again, in watching these, uh, like CPU versus CPU battles yeah. <laughs> uh, unfold and the the moves made there was a there's like a small moment where Klobuchar for example uh, was asking uh, Barrett a question about super precedence and Barrett threw the question back at her basically to to say like well how would you define it and um Klobuchar's response was well there was a time when I imagined being in the seat you're in now but now it's like you are there and I'm up here. So you answer the question. Um, meaning, <laughs> I, I guess I'm saying this, I'm bringing this up mostly to, to support the the thing. Like when you think about the, the impact of something like many of the people who are in Congress, like having mm-hmm. backgrounds in law, for example, if one of the, the very central like sort of goals, let's say, mm-hmm. of many people going into law school or like, you know, pie in the sky ambitions is, you know, oh, one day I could become... Uh, a judge and then one day I could become like a Supreme Court justice for example if that's one of the like the highest possible like attainable goals right then Mm -hmm. how are you ever going like how how if if like people with those aspirations are the people creating legislation right uh or who may may have had those aspirations at some point like how are you possibly going to like ever curtail the the power of the judiciary I mean it's like you know, I don't know, the, like the, the national conversation I would like to be having right now is how we can just like completely throw all of these. Yeah. Fu- like every single like one of these fucking justices out or like completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Change like completely fucking change the court system. Like this is not. But I, I, I think that part of the, the problem here is that the things that get mistaken for justice, <laughs> like yeah. the idea that winning your case is justice. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. For, you know, um, or, or the idea that, you know, uh, like ensuring that Medicaid work requirements don't go into effect as justice. Now I'm, I'm by no means denying that the cases that, you know, were brought before um, the DC district court on, on Medicaid work requirements weren't impactful. They were like a lot of people now are able to stay on Medicaid when uh, they would have been just completely thrown off and they, you know, were in Arkansas, but that's not, that's not enough for, for justice, obviously. Right. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that you simply can't do with that set of tools. And to the extent that you believe that it is primarily through case law that you incrementally accrue, uh, justice over time. I mean, I think it's just, it's so evident to me in the way that if you need any proof of it, just look at the way that the administration currently abides by or respects judicial decisions that are made. I mean, it's a complete game to them. Um, There are any number of rounds in the game. The game never ends, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, there's no submission, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that like law is the, a good realm for like politics to play out in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe that works if, if everyone is like really behaving in this particular way where like they're submitting to the rules, but when you begin to see evidence that that doesn't happen and the game just continues and like, and we, and this is like not a new thing, obviously. Um, but I mean like, what, what, at what point do you say like, no, back to politics, 
back right. to like building a mass movement, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And totally. also at this point, like most of their like quote unquote like justice that they've been doling out is like declarative and symbolic in nature only. You know, like, yeah, we mm-hmm. have Roe v. Wade except for like there is no protected right to abortion in the United States actually. Right. Like in mm-hmm. practice, they're like, you know, the court system is not uh, has no intent or design to restore justice, to, uh, you know, rectify wrongs against people and prevent harm. It's there to like create symbolic gestures, which are supposed to inform the implementation of various things down the line. You oh, know. also protect property. That, <laughs> yeah. of course. <laughs> Absolutely protect Primary, property. yeah. This yeah. is, I'm talking like day two goals, day one yeah, yeah. goal. You wake <laughs> yeah. up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you're like, there was, when, you, when you got finished, when you got finished protecting all those people's property, what, what are you going to do on your, you know, on your, on your off day? <laughs> I mean, spot on Vince. Cause uh, yesterday there was, uh, was a pretty funny moment where uh, one of the, one of, one of the senators, a Republican senator questioning um, Barrett um, said, I think responding to, uh, some, like some Democrat had said an invective about COVID ravaging, uh, rural communities or something. And <laughs> one of the Republican questioners said something like, uh, we, we like we're, our, our, our hearts go out for all the lost property and lives, <laughs> literally putting property in front of the yeah. lives. But yeah, but, but I mean, to, to, um, but to that point actually about, you know, actually how like it, relying on courts to like, like, I don't know what slowly incrementally like change and expand existing like law or something as opposed <laughs> to, you know, making additions to it or I don't know, completely, you know, throwing out and creating a new constitution, which I would be in favor of. I mean, it um, sounds like the, when you say it, it sounds ridiculous as what, a priority to not do that. Well, but um, I'll just point out like, so Barrett, like in 2016, uh, there's there's like a there's a quote that's going around uh, that is that like so Barrett in 2016 very specifically said of like um of like uh, bathroom laws mm-hmm. uh, protecting mm-hmm. like from discrimination against transgender people um, Barrett said for like first of all in describing it said that it was to protect people who are like trans women who are uh, quote physiologically a boy unquote um, <laughs> and then. Uh, continued like the the part of the quote that's not going around though is that like she continued on to say if you want like if you want that to be part of uh, Title Seven like change Title Seven right right um, which not great but also unfortunately a fair point I mean we have a long history of sort of like not mm-hmm. of leaving out a lot of. Uh, like a lot of like people in groups and like leaving things mm-hmm. uh, very like broadly interpretable basically. No, Artie, Artie, you make such a good point though, because you know, the stuff is too important to leave it up to the interpretation of one trad wife who makes it onto a court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like her beer buddy uh, rapist and like the other one. And then the other one. Like, <laughs> just like a normal creep of some kind. Roberts? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, there I, are I mean, a bunch of them. This is the thing: is like this stuff should not be left up to chance. And and you know, of course, like as much as the Amy Coney Island hearings are basically like sitting down to listen to an audio book of Ulysses, like they were not <laughs> the most absurd thing that happened this week. Um, I I think for me, sort of the like defining theme that that underlies like all my thinking of all this other stuff has just been the. Uh, inaction on the stimulus and that sort of conversation of like 
where the legislative priorities are right now, what, you know, what we need to be focusing on versus the hearings, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's it seems like at this point, like things are continuing to get worse and worse. Um, People are desperate. They are being evicted. They are housing insecure, food insecure. You know, we're not beating despair right now, despite, (laughs) you know, maybe that's because, you know, uh, Caputo's ad campaign has not come out yet. And as soon as it comes out, we will be beating despair once we see that, you know, interview with Fauci, with Fauci and Dennis Quaid. Um, Like, I don't know, it feels kind of like being held hostage in relation to this upcoming election. I think personally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's definitely what it feels like uh, to me. I mean, I think the, the thing that's like most frustrating is the endurance of like internal institutional motivations that are completely cannot be understood by most people, including me. Um, But, (laughs) you know, I think, the way that this negotiation is, is sort of like taken place is you have you you had sort of like two forces within the White House. You had the uh, Kudlow wing who was basically like, don't give him anything. The Mnuchin <laughs> wing who was like more or less kind of closer to where the Fed is on the mm-hmm. on the need for, for stimulus. And then in Congress, you had Democrats who basically want the HEROES Act. And then you have the the Senate, which wants the ability to appear that they're doing something before these elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like what you basically, but, and then you have Trump obviously, which is a completely different factor who, who there is no consistency to his position in bargaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day he says he wants the Senate bill. Another day he says he wants more than 2.2 trillion. Um, so it, <laughs> and then no stimulus at all. And right. Like- and, and so, but now sort of where we are is um, because there's been like no ability for like the Republicans in the Senate and the white house factions to, to sort of coordinate with one another. Like McConnell is essentially like delegated bargaining entirely to uh, Mnuchin uh, who's who's directly negotiating with uh, Pelosi and Mnuchin see the really like shifty thing is they keep saying like, no, 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 we're really close to where the Democrats are. We're at one point. Well, Mnuchin is effectively now like brought up to 1.8 trillion, whereas Democrats came in at like 2.2 trillion, but it's somewhat deceptive. Um, and I was initially just sort of like, um, God, it's idiotic. Why? Why would they not just take the deal? They're not going to get a better one after the election. And I still sort of feel that way. Right. But at the same time, like a lot of the things that are in the 1.8 trillion, like it's not clear to me how serious they are about their offer because there are things in the offer that are not just like poison pills, but like, like napalm. Um, so like they, they <laughs> like claim what? to want to give a lot on state and local aid, but they also want to install financial control boards oh, that man. are like the debt juntas in New York and Puerto Rico. So like that to me, it's like, I, I don't see Democrats going for that. And that's in there intentionally so that they won't. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, although, I mean, I, I guess, I, I don't know, I, gen, like genuine question here, I guess, does it to me, actually, unfortunately, in my estimation of the Democratic Party, I would think that actually ha- like installing a debt control board would be totally 
along the lines of the i mean even like what uh like cuomo said that Mm -hmm. like new york city should have a debt control board again right um like and that was uh, only like two months ago or something and you know i just i don't know i have a i have in some ways i have a hard time believing that that alone would be not i mean i i know it's not that alone but like that would be a huge deterrent to them unfortunately right mm-hmm. I, I mean i i actually think if you look at what committee chairs have said i mean i, I agree with you i think that there's a good chunk of the caucus that like they would maybe be fine with that because that's how they feel about these things fiscally. But it's not not the committee chairs necessarily. Gotcha. I think they want to be able to do the spend out and to do it quickly. And there are other things in the bill that will really prevent that. So, for example, on testing, apparently Mnuchin's position is in order to get the testing money, state legislatures will have to pass a new law. Um, and I, I mean, if you know anything about how state legislatures work, like that's not going to happen. Uh, it is so not going to happen. Like Wisconsin state legislature hasn't met since like April. I mean, so it's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, you know, no. I agree with you. I agree with you. Like there are things that like, I'm sure, look, I think we can all agree. Democrats will probably plump for a lot of things that are really stupid, but <laughs> at the same time, I there are some things in there that are just so they're so obviously poison pills that I, mm-hmm. I yeah i mean the problem is is like that's not i don't feel like that's being effectively messaged at this point um the the leadership and the perception on of the general public is is definitely not that there are legitimate reasons that they are um stalling on this absolutely i i think that for me the any my main criticism of Pelosi in all of this is less about anything she's been doing in the last like four weeks. And and like I reject entirely the position of being like, ooh, the Washington insider, number one, because I'm not and I never will be. But number two, I just think it's like it's you lose so much when you're just trying to follow the day to day like tit for tat strategies. Look at what they did and did not do in March or April. Right. When they had the most leverage, when they Mm -hmm. like really Democrats were in the driver's seat on cares. Okay. Mm -hmm. What they did was advance a bill that yes, it did, did spread around some money, but the primary thing it did was consolidate corporate power with the largest sort of program of uh, federal reserve relief for non-financial corporations like ever passed. And they could have gone further on state and local aid. They could have gone further on Medicaid. They could have gone, they had more leverage than they were ever going to have again. And they didn't use it. That's Mm -hmm. the problem because whereas Republicans, so like we're talking about the different branches of government, Republicans see the branches of government as working together in a kind of coherent regime formation. The courts are for breaking the back of labor and consolidating like monopolistic control of the economy. Congress <laughs> is for giving tax, uh, tax relief to wealthy people. Um, <laughs> and the executive branch is for restricting immigration and basically disciplining, um, dissent. I mean, so like, they understand how these things fit together to form a regime. Right. Democrats see them as independent institutions that sort of work apart from one another. They don't work hand in glove. And the so like, it's not surprising to me that, that <laughs> they, they didn't see that as a big moment where they should go big. Right. Mm-hmm. B, B mentioned to me uh, the other day that it was like practically like Brechtian uh, watching this happen because like... Um, essentially like Senate Republicans got everything that they wanted, right? Cause they mm-hmm. got their corporate uh, bailout. Wall street's doing pretty good, you know, continues to do pretty good. Um, 
their bases are covered essentially. So, you know, the, the, the complete failure to one communicate what is happening and the ability like to get rolled basically to the point that it really looks like to a, to like a casual observer, um, that basically singularly the, like the, the one person making this like an impossible thing to like, uh, imagine there being a second stimulus, like, becomes like nancy pelosi in the public eye like that's i mean just uh, right she's she's a sort of unfortunately has written herself into the role of focal point i mean maybe 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 it actually would help to um you know, I think we, we use clips pretty sparingly uh, or try to on the show. This but I think a it would, pretty good clip. It would be helpful. Yeah. To, I'm sure everyone's seen this by now, but the uh, to play the Pelosi clip, because I mean, the degree to which this uh, exchange is like political amateur hour on essentially <laughs> the eve of an election is. <laughs> and it's not about me. It's about millions of Americans who can't put food on the table, who can't pay the rent. And we represent them. And we represent them. Getting and by we represent these them. long food and we lines represent that we're seeing. Them. I know we you know are. Say it one more time. I'm, I'm just saying. We represent them and we know them. As we, we say. We know them. We represent them. Don't let yes. the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say. It is here nowhere in near perfect. Madam Speaker. <laughs> Always the case, but we're not even close to the good. All right. Let's see what happens, because every day is critically, critically important. Thanks so much Thank for joining us. Thank you for your us. sensitivity to our constituents' needs. I am sensitive to them because I see them on the street begging for food, begging for money. Madam Speaker, thank you, you so much. Have you fed them? We feed them. We we'll, feed them. We'll continue this conversation down the road for sure. We'll take a quick break. Ooh, we'll do right you? Back. We feed them. The food we feed bank them. lines when? might suggest otherwise. I don't know. It's like it's like someone pulled Nancy Pelosi aside one day and they're like, "Listen, you know, like social safety net supports and welfare. That's just like Beetlejuice. All you have to do is get on TV and say it three times, and then people think it's real, and you don't have to act." <laughs> Nancy Pelosi is like, "In 1994, I gave three cans of uh, canned pumpkin to my local food bank. That counts. I feed them." Um, yeah, you know, that, I mean, you know that fridge full of ice cream. I apologized for that by giving it out to people. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, this is so like the line among Washington insiders is that Pelosi is a very skilled negotiator. She's capable of getting what she wants, and she has already gotten the administration to move very far on this uh, policy. Right? That's that's the line. But like, it's strange to me because. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I can't possibly know the answer to that question. Like, it would seem to me to be the case that the most successful negotiations happen in private, uh, and that perhaps in private, that's actually where she's most successful. If, if the strategy now is to move negotiations into public light, and indeed that's exactly what Pelosi's been doing by releasing these dear colleague letters. I mean, she's not. Like the thing you would have wanted to do in that interview, I guess, would have been to say, here is what they're trying to do in the bill. Here's what they right. don't want. Here's the n- needed benefit that people will not be getting if you don't pass it our way. Right. Instead, mm-hmm. instead, she like just seems so dismissive of any concern. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, it's just like you take the thing that you're supposed to be doing and you completely turn it around. Well, it's like the adults are arguing like we're going to sort out the details. You don't need to like you don't need to concern yourself with the details like we've got. Trust me, I'm not the one holding this up, etc. Bunch right? of paternalistic mm-hmm. bullshit, if yeah. you ask me. It's totally paternalistic. And yeah. 
you know, such as American life. Yeah. The thing, <laughs> the thing too, is just like, you know, uh, whether she's, you know, a skilled negotiator or not, right. She's doing an incredibly bad job at doing anything other than protecting the sanctity of her own position of and role of power within society. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it's not like Wolf Blitzer is like a super sharp tack, right. Right. To, to be (laughs) completely, um, owned by Wolf Blitzer is an accomplishment that very few people can collectively claim. You know what I mean? So I don't know. What are we going to do for the next three months at this point? You know, like we're just supposed to sit here and wait till January in March. Not a single like expert on disease, immunology, biology, epidemiology was saying that, oh, this definitely is just going to be a thing that's like probably over in summer. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why or, in March are well, you no not one was listening to those people in March? Everyone in March was like, we're going to lock down for two weeks and it'll be fine. So, yeah. Know. I think that should disqualify you from serving in office anymore. That represents a gross misjudgment, malpractice, and a disqualifying um, mistake. You should be fired. Right? Yeah. We live in capitalism. It's a right to work. Is Congress right to work? It should be, maybe. (laughs) Maybe Congress should be made right to work. They, uh, yeah, they have the best employment protections of just just about anybody in America. So, like, there's a a big piece in uh, the Journal Sentinel yesterday. It was actually a really, really good piece on the way that the federal government like threw out the pandemic playbook that it had uh on uh on COVID-19 that like if you looked like prior to the pandemic all of these different rankings is like the US is like most has the best capacity to deal with pandemic as the best plan and these are things that like you know very mainstream you know WHO type rankings would suggest right but, you know, and, and it's a really, really good article. Totally like, recommend reading it um, just for like the history of these things. But I, I feel like this whole idea that there was a playbook uh, really projects an image that like there, there were all of these capacities that were just inert and you only had to switch them on very quickly. <laughs> and then you would get, you know, the playbook and they would run the plays <clears throat> and score the <throat> touchdowns, et cetera. I really hate that word. Because at the end of the day, it's the, the only playbook that exists really is the structure of the political economy and the particular design of our governing institutions. That's the playbook. Anything that we put out as like a document about how we would respond to the pandemic makes certain assumptions about how people in that political economy are going to work. And it's so obvious now in looking at the strategic calculations that people made in March, the the way that people, uh, the incentives people had to just assume that this is going to be a one and done very quick thing is that the, the playbook, i.e. like the entire political economy that produces this stuff is rotten to the core. The, yeah. the problem is we had the, one of the worst playbooks. We had one of the <laughs> worst designs for the political economy yeah. and uh, the incentives of, of anyone who had power at that time uh, were to just completely defer action and assume that everything was going to be right. It essentially, it produced the mysticism that now has trickled down into this idea that like, oh, we'll just, you know, you're all immune now. Right. We all just, we're right. all just going to, it's sort of like one of those things where like, um, 
like uh, Swiss uh, Christian sects uh, and German Christian sects in like the uh, like 1700s had to like somehow break out of celestial marriage, right? Or the idea that like they weren't going to be able to propagate themselves unless they were able to like marry off and have kids, but everyone was supposed to be already married to Christ. And so like, what did you do? It's like, well, they're like, Oh shit. What if we just called all the men women? And then like, what if, what if everyone had sex with one another and we could all still somehow be married to Christ? Like that's the level, that's the sort of like theologics that are like going on right now in the way that uh, we've set up the incentives for people to think about this thing. And mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, I don't know. I mean, I wow, I have so that. much to research after this episode. Belgian uh, pigeon racing, doping, and um, Swiss Christ- Christian sex. Is that what we were saying? <laughs> Medieval <Yeah>. seed yields. <laughs> um, well, I think as a, as a final note, and as a, a sort of teaser for what, what we will uh, be uh, talking about for the upcoming patron episode, um, we mentioned earlier the uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, which mm-hmm. we've you know, mentioned a couple times. We have a you know the episode with uh, Abby Cardis, for example, where we talk about Martin Koldorf. I think before the Great Barrington Declaration became a thing, um, and and this whole this whole sort of uh, lousy uh, bad approach. But I thought uh, as a as a bit of a, a teaser, which I assume because we I don't think we'll be able to, well I don't think we'll be talking about this particular aspect of it. Uh, when we when we uh, get into what the Great Barrington Declaration is and says, um, but I would I would like to uh, direct everyone's attention to a, a piece which I am now going to read from uh, from a new source for us, which is the Berkshire Eagle. Um, <laughs> do it. Headline: Great Barrington residents chafe at town name on COVID nineteen policy declaration. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yes, I guess they, yeah, ch- chafe is chafe is the strongest uh, the strongest uh, <laughs> word that they use to describe people's feelings. They're practically chuffed. No, I know that's actually a different thing. That's, that's yeah. You, you change you change the a to a u, and I guess it becomes the opposite, right? Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, here's a local community that uh, you know will will not benefit from the state and local aid, which is non-existent, uh, and a small slice of life. Um, for, for your, uh, I don't know, democracy at work. Uh, so let me, let me just read from this. Uh, quote, Some great Barrington residents are none too pleased. They say they plan to take up the matter with town hall, perhaps by petition or perhaps urge a rebuttal declaration. They'd like to see the town's name stripped from the document. Susan Petty is one who said, uh, who said so on Hill GB, a neighborhood email group that exploded with outrage this week. Petty told the Eagle that this isn't like various international peace accords with agreed upon place names like Paris, Yalta, or Oslo. Another local resident, Redbeard Simmons, said to get ready to watch town property values skyrocketing thanks to desirability of Great Barrington in light of COVID-19 plummet as a result. Um, quote, damage control cannot begin quickly enough, Simmons wrote. <laughs> We must bop this on the head and hard. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Can you say that one again? We must bop this on the head and hard. Um, <laughs> resident we Shannon must bop Gregory. It, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right, then twist it and pull it. Um, <laughs> resident Sharon Gregory wondered if a bylaw could be passed to disassociate the name. <laughs> 
Carol Deal of House Atonic isn't worried about the town being connected to the Declaration, but she doesn't like how, quote, politicized everything is. Oh my fucking <laughs> God. This is just I'm a group sorry. of people who have never experienced any adversity before, and this is basically the most outrage they've all been collectively over anything. <laughs> um, and estate taxes, also estate taxes. <laughs> Some who wrote on the Hill GB email list say they would also like to complain to the institute where the declaration was drafted. The institution declined to comment on the situation Wednesday. <laughs> Residents likely will go to town hall where one town official says he isn't worried about the declaration's effect. He thinks people know the difference between a geographical name stamped on ideas throughout history and the notion that the town has not and will not endorse. Quote, I think people are smart enough and savvy enough to be able to separate the declaration from the right thing to do to halt the spread of the virus, said select <laughs> board chairman Stephen Bannon. No relation. All it's saying Wait. is that it was called, it was crafted in Great Barrington. All I can think of is the Gettysburg Address. God. Anyway. I, okay. <laughs> you know, wow. just like the Gettysburg Address, right? Yeah. Four score and seven years ago, we decided that. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people should die and that's pretty much okay i like this because it has local man yells at cloud energy oh yeah for <laughs> sure <That's> <laughs> and I, I feel bad for the guy who's got to be like no it's steven b bannon <laughs> yeah. i don't know yeah. it's the other he didn't change his name after i mean like right well i mean i look forward to hearing all about great barrington's campaign to separate itself from one of the greatest documents of eugenics of all time <laughs> again we won't we probably won't be talking about that but i will i will continue to monitor the situation yeah i think in uh, great barrington please let's please, see how uh, how severe maybe they'll change their town name that'd be funny that would actually be hilarious um, um well yeah so become a patron join us on monday for a fantastic in-depth discussion on the latest with the great barrington declaration patreon.com slash death panel pod you get access to all of the weekly bonus episodes our entire back catalog and a discount on merch obviously um so if you become a patron make sure to check your sign up email for that and we'll see you next time medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week see y'all
Yeah. I mean, the IMF is already projecting a market correction in not too long. So, I mean, <laughs> that's at the end. Of the, it's very sad. It now appears that that is the only thing that uh, drives like policy change. Like just just forget about lobbying, forget about advocacy, forget about protests. Just watch for the market correction. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That beautiful, mm-hmm. big market, which provides for so many we love the market. Yes, I can feel the invisible hand uh, just putting its fingers in my ass right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I like it. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to follow that joke. <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't supposed to be an easy way to follow it. 